It was about a year and a half ago, I was uh, at our church getting ready for our Christmas Eve uh, service. It was one of the few services that we had throughout the, uh, throughout the day. And my cousin Mitchell came up to me. And my cousin Mitchell just had a radical uh, relationship, or a radical just understanding of Jesus and this transformation. And he was so on fire. And he was coming into our Christmas Eve service and he runs up to me and he says, hey, I wanted to let you know that a lot of my family is coming to church today, including Laura and Sean. Laura was his sister and Sean was his brother-in-law. And he said, you know that they don't usually go to church, but they're coming today. And I said, you know, Mitchell, I know they don't usually go to church. I know that your other siblings go in some form or fashion or call themselves Christians or have some relationship with God. But why don't Laura and Sean ever go to church? And you could tell his excitement turned pretty quickly and he, and he got down and he, and he said, you know, the reason they don't go to church is because my sister says that all the people that go to church that they know are hypocritical. It reminded me of Jim and when he was talking about his Uber driver, it's probably a word that maybe she would use as well. Hypocritical. And I don't think any of us are probably thinking, okay, it's not something that we have not heard from a lot of people. A lot of people outside the church, when they think of the church, oftentimes a word they describe when it comes to Christians is the word hypocrite. But what's interesting to me is it hurt when I heard that about my own cousin using that word, but the word didn't originate with non-Christians. The first time someone made this word famous when it came to describing those who are religious was Jesus himself. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 20, he's going through all of these different woes to these, uh, to these Pharisees, to these teachers of the law, and he's calling them hypocrites. And it's interesting in Matthew 23, 27 through 28, he puts it this way. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You look like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The word hypocrite in Greek literally means stage actor. And it makes sense. Jesus is going up to these teachers of the law, these people who look the part and act the part and say, man, you are putting on an Academy Award performance because it looks like that you are close to God by your prayer life, by your knowledge of scripture, by the way you treat people. But on the inside, your heart with God, it can be described as a grave. That what you believe and how you display that belief, there's something that's disconnected there. And because of that, you're hypocritical. Every time I think of this word hypocrite, especially when Jesus uses it, I think about if Jesus were here today and he walked into our churches, whatever church you go to back in your hometown, would he say the same thing about the church today? Would he say, wow, these people look like they're Christians because they're singing these songs and they're reading their Bibles and they're praying and they're doing these things. But the problem is their actions are not lining up with their beliefs and vice versa. I just wonder if he would say that about us today. And if he would, what do we need to do as Christ followers to change that perspective? What do we need to do as those who call themselves followers of Jesus, his disciples, what do we have to do so Jesus would never label us that way and our family and friends and coworkers, those you know in your your lives that don't step foot in the church, what do we need to do to convince them otherwise? 
I believe Jesus is going to show us two things today as we open up God's word to John 13. So as you open up to John 13, let's pray together. Father, there is so much at stake for how we live as Christians are what people think of not just Christians, but of the Christ. And Lord, I just pray that if there's something in these passages that we as Christ followers here are guilty of, would you root that out? Lord, what we say and what we believe, would that line up? What we believe and what we do, would that line up? Jesus, we want to be called your disciples, never using the word hypocritical. And Lord, help us to show us what that looks like in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. John 13 through 17 is what uh, theologians call the final discourse, or these are Jesus' last words to the disciples before they're about to go, or before Jesus is about to go to the cross. And in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, Jesus is giving us some background on the passage we'll be looking at today. And this background is sandwiched between Judas going to betray Jesus and Peter's denial of Jesus himself. And right between these uh, passages of scripture, Jesus says this. When he, who Judas, was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, and so I tell you where I am going, you cannot come. And so again, John 13 begins Jesus' trek to the cross. He is speaking to disciples about some last things he wants them to know about. And as he's talking to them, he's talking about his glory. What's the greatest display of God's glory? It's the cross. It's Jesus coming to this earth, showing us who God is, and then God dying on a cross for our sin. And Jesus says when that happens, Jesus and God himself will be glorified to its greatest understanding. But Jesus says, look, I'm going to the cross and then I'm going to resurrect and I'm going to go back to the Father. You can't come with me yet. There's a lot of work to do here. And because you will still be here and you're still going to be my disciples and you're going to represent me, I need you to do one thing well. And here's what Jesus says in the next part of the verse, verse 34. He says, a new command I give you. Now, in Greek, that word new literally means something unusual, something strange, something that's never been heard of before. And so I wonder if the disciples are like, yes, we get some more of that Jesus knowledge. Like, we're going to be hearing even more of this new kingdom that Jesus is launching. We get to be a part of that. What is going to happen? And as they're sitting on the edge of their seats, listening to Jesus and wondering what he's going to say, Jesus says this, love one another. The disciples are like, wait a minute, what do you mean love one another? That's not new. I mean, you've been saying this the whole time you've been with us. We know the Mosaic law, that is embedded into it. We are supposed to love one another as we love ourselves. We know that. What is so new about this? And I think Jesus understood the disciples would think this, and so he adds a caveat to it. Instead of just loving your neighbor as you love yourself and you define love by the way you want to be loved, Jesus says, let's change that. And so he says this in the whole verse, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. Now that's new. That's radical. 
See, love goes beyond a feeling. Love goes beyond how would I want to be loved and therefore I will love someone like that. Now it starts with a person and it starts with Jesus. How does Jesus display his love amongst his disciples? How does Jesus display his love amongst people like the tax collector and the prostitutes? He loves them selflessly. selflessly. He loves them sacrificially. He loves them in a way that he does what's best for them. That's what real love is. And Jesus is saying, when you ought to love other people, think of how I've loved you. I mean, think about that for a moment today. Think about God's unconditional love for you. Think of the moment when you heard the words, Jesus loves me. That he loves you with all the warts, all the things you've done, your past, your present, your future, that this Jesus has loved you so sacrificially, so selflessly that he was willing to give his life for you. We understand what that love feels like, that pursuit of love every single day and how that radically changes who we are from the inside out. Jesus says, love other people the same way. Give yourself away just like I gave myself away to you. And Jesus says this, if you do this, if you love people the way that I have loved you, and you continue to do this over and over and over again, by this, by my love displayed through you, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One pastor said this about this verse, and it really stuck with me. He said this, imagine a world where they are skeptical of what you believe, but are envious by the way that you love. Think about that. In other words, we cannot force people to love Jesus. We cannot force people to believe in Jesus. We can't control that. But what we can control is how people see Jesus. And Jesus says the way that he wants to be seen, he wants to be known for, is our love for one another. He stakes his love on our love for each other. For when we love each other the way Jesus loves, then the world's gonna say, wait a minute, what they have is different. I may not believe everything they're saying, but their love is so selfless, so sacrificial, so radical that I wanna be a part of that. If their God is this loving and they display it amongst their people, maybe God loves me this way. Everyone will see who Jesus is and how loving he is and how gracious he is, how amazing he is, the things that we put our hands up and worship and worship. They will know about him through our love for one another. Now, again, when we use the word love, it can be ambiguous. Sometimes we say we love God, we love our spouse, and we love steak all in the same uh, sentence. And sometimes it kind of goes above, you know, maybe it's wife, God, maybe it's steak, God, at least in my life. But what does love really mean? How is it displayed in our everyday interactions? The phrase, one another, has been uttered over a hundred times in the New Testament. There are 59 individual, uniquely um, phrased passages that talk about these one another's. And maybe you know these, maybe you've studied these, but this is what faith acting in love looks like when we embrace these one another's and then we live these out in community. And so I can't go through all 59, but I wanna go through three of them. 
And as we look at these one another passages, I want you to think, is this my church? Is this my small group? Is this my marriage? Is this how I am displaying Jesus in the world? Or would the world say, you know, I know this is what you're supposed to do. I know this is what you claim to believe. But when I look at your lives or I look at your church, I just don't see it. I mean, imagine if we got these things right. Imagine the atheist, the agnostic that's on the outside looking in. If we got this right, they may be skeptical of our faith, but they can never deny our love. One of the verses that I love is Romans 15, 7. It says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Imagine if we lived in such a way where people may not believe in Jesus, but they saw our love displayed in this way, that we accepted everyone, and I mean everyone, no matter their past, no matter who they loved, no matter what they believed, no matter what they look like, no matter their socioeconomic um, scale, no matter what their color of their skin is. Imagine if we accepted everybody as they are, just like Jesus did in the Gospels. Imagine if people walked in and they instantly felt like they belonged just because they were a human. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if this was in our churches? Your atheist friends and your skeptical neighbor would be like, wow. Because everybody wants to belong. They should belong in our church. They should belong in our church because we belong to Jesus. And they should know that. It's displayed through our love. Or Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgive you. Imagine, imagine if our churches displayed this kind of love. Our friends and our family may be skeptical of our faith, but they couldn't deny our love. Imagine if they understood that even our biggest grievances against one another, we just forgave because why Jesus forgave us. Can you imagine if they walked in and they just noticed the kindness just dripping from our lives? People would want to be a part of that. And because people would want to be a part of that, they would see that there is a God behind it that accepts everyone, that is kind to everyone, that's compassionate to everyone. It starts with us and how we love one another so people can see that Jesus is kind and compassionate and loves them. Imagine if that was happening in our churches. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's exactly what we talked about the other day. Imagine if disciples cared more about Jesus's greatness than their own greatness. Imagine if Jesus followers defined success as not climbing a ladder, but going downwards and grabbing a towel and washing people's feet. Imagine if the world saw our kind of love displayed through our humility, that we cared about other people's success just as much or more than our own success, that our love reflected Jesus who came down from heaven to this earth and got dirty with us and we would get dirty with other people because we care more about them than us. Imagine that. People may not believe in a trinity. People not, may not believe in an afterlife, but our love will make them question their beliefs. Our love, Jesus says, for one another will be a light in this world that shines brightly on Jesus. Is that what's happening in our church, in our world? Are we painting a good picture of Jesus based upon our love 
for one another. A few months ago, I was at our Port Clinton campus of our church. We have three campuses, Sandusky, Norwalk, and Port Clinton. And I was there, I was opening the door and just greeting people as they came in. And there's this 20-something-year-old girl that I've never seen before. And she came in and, and she went in and got some coffee and said hi. And then she came back and she started to talk to me. Honestly, it was a very awkward conversation at first. I started to ask her questions and I got one-word responses. And I was like, I don't really know how to continue to talk to this girl, but I'll try my best. But quickly, she started to open up. And she wouldn't look at me. She just would look down. And as she opened up, I understand why. She told me as a part of her story that she'd been abused by her stepdad. And she told me as a part of that, it really changed who she is. And she had this just terrible view of herself and just wrestling with a lot of different things on the inside. And she told me that she went to church for a long time, but she felt like the church didn't accept her for who she was. And so she left. And she told me that today she's giving church a different, giving it a shot again. The reason she's in poor Clinton is because she lived in Norwalk where we have a campus, but she was afraid that she would see people she knew. So she wanted to drive 20 minutes to go to another campus in hopes that we would accept her. Well, I talked to her for a little longer and she left. And then I heard through the grapevine, she got into our young adult ministry and she was in a Bible study, but I never heard from her or seen her since. And then last Sunday at her father's day, she came to church and I said hi to her. It was the first time I'd seen her in a long time. And she left and we exchanged pleasantries and we said hi and bye and those kinds of things. And then later that day, I got a Facebook message from her. And she said, Eric, I want to tell you, I didn't think that I would ever be able to go to church again, let alone find a church that I would call home. But because of the love displayed through the chapel, I finally found the family that I long to have. Jesus said it's our love. It's our acceptance. It's our forgiveness. It's our kindness. It's extending ourselves to the widow and to the poor and to the person who's been abused and the person who has gone through traumatic situations in life. It's when we love that people will want to feel like they belong. And when they feel like they belong, they're going to feel like they belong to a God that longs for them to belong to him. It has to happen through our love. It's the only way. Now, fast forward a little bit with me into John 17. So go right over to John 17. Right before Jesus is about to die on the cross, you see Jesus praying. Jesus' prayer life is just one of those things where I'm just jealous of it. He just gets it. He just understands his need to be with the Father. And here he is praying for his disciples in the first half of Jesus' prayer. But it's the second half of the prayer that really convicts me and gets my heart going. For it's in this part of his prayer that Jesus is not praying for his disciples that are in front of him, but he's praying for us, his future disciples. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Right before Jesus is about to die, he is praying for you and he's praying for me. It just always boggles my mind every time I read Jesus' prayer, that we were on his heart and his mind and how we would live as his church. What was he praying for? Or here's part of this prayer in verses 20 through 23. 
He says, my prayer is not for them, meaning my disciples alone. I also pray for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, and I and I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Going back to verse 21, that word sent, it is found in John over and over again. In fact, it is found over 44 times to describe the mission of Jesus in John alone. It's one of John's most repeated words in his gospel. And John is making a point, just like he makes a point of repeating the word love often, he makes his point about being sent, that Jesus has been sent into the world, that he would be sent to die and of course rise again, and he would be sent into the world so people may know that he loves them and wants a relationship with them. But again, just like in John 13, he's been sent, but he's going to be taken back. And so who is left to do his work? But it's the church. And as you read Jesus' prayer, he said, I'm going to be sent, but now I'm going to send you. And the way the world is going to know that you are from me, what is going to distinguish you from everybody else, not as just your love, but something else. Now, maybe you're like me and you had to chug a little coffee before I came up here. I'm tired. But if you missed what Jesus is praying for, I want to read the passage again. And I've highlighted it for you if you're a little tired this morning. Again, notice what Jesus is praying for. He's not praying that we'd have great worship music. He's not praying that we'd have awesome teaching. He's not praying that we'd have great programming. All that's great. How is the world going to know that the Father sent Jesus. Again, let's read it. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. My prayer is not, did I mess this up a little bit here? Sorry, I went, out of, I went out of order here. I'm going to go to 2021, and then that was 22, 23. I had it messed up here. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also believe in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I said the other passage, just backwards. He's praying for unity. He's praying for oneness. But what kind of oneness? What kind of unity? The same unity that Jesus had with the Father. Did you notice when you read the Gospels that, man, Jesus and the Father, they are in sync. They have the same heart. They have the same mind. They have the same mission. That it's linked between them. And they are unified in that. They are one in heart, one in mission, wanting to accomplish the purpose of revealing who God is to the world and showing them he's come to rescue them. They're one in heart and mission. And Jesus says, if the world is going to know that I am who I say I am, that I was sent in, then you must have the same kind of unity, that you must have the same heart and the same mind and the same mission. That's just all about Jesus and all about revealing who Jesus is. 
and that Jesus came to rescue broken sinners like you and me. It's all about our unity, all about our oneness. And what's so great about this, Jesus says, if you get this right, people are going to know who I am. They're going to see me. But it's also true. If we get it wrong, then people won't see Jesus. And if they do, they will have a distorted image of who he really is. So let me ask you, how do we think the church is doing with our unity? Would you say that as we looked at Jesus' prayer, that we are an answer to his prayer, that we are one, that we are unified in heart and in mission, that we've made it all about Jesus, period? Or would you say that we are divided as a church? That it is about Jesus, but also about other things as well. If you don't know the answer, I'll help you out. Did you know in the global Christian church, there are 45,000 denominations in the church? Think about that. 45,000 denominations. Just like Jim said, he is not in agriculture. I am not a mathematician. But I do know that 45,000 is way more than one. I wonder if that 45,000 number breaks Jesus' heart. Be unified as one in heart and in mission. Make it about Jesus then everything else is secondary. But I wonder if the things that are secondary have become first and Jesus has become secondary. In his book, Until Unity, Francis Chan, he puts it this way, we have forgotten how our divisions affect God in an unbelieving world. Our casual dismissive attitude toward unity is incredibly dangerous for God is disgusted with it and the world is confused by it. Over the last year and a half, I cringe to think of how confused our world is and how disgusted God is with our lack of unity and oneness as a church. This last year and a half has been hard for all of us probably one of the hardest year and a half of our life. There's been some great things that come out of it. And I believe that the church is going to reap from that. But I'm just telling you as a pastor, I feel like my heart has been completely broken. Broken by the disunity. Broken by a wasted opportunity to shine a light in the darkness. And it just feels like our church added to it. For the next few moments, I want to walk you through what happened in our church over the last year and a half. I am not going to tell you which side I fall into. This is not about Democrat or Republican or Black Lives Matter or not Black Lives Matter. This isn't to get political, but it is. Because something has happened in our church over this last year and a half that I think has revealed something. The problem with me, though, is that I was naive. 
Our church has been a church for 35 years that had one founding pastor. That founding pastor passed the baton to my co-lead pastor and me. We have never had a church split. We've never had to go through what Jim went through years ago as he was trying to get ousted as the senior pastor. When we would have little discrepancies here and there, we always knew how to come back together. But this year was different. And it revealed those roots that Jim said that I thought were deeper were really shallow. When George Floyd was killed, I'll never forget that we as a church did what a lot of other churches did and a lot of other organizations did and rightly did was speak out against it. And I'll never forget on that Friday, I received two phone calls. One was from a woman who said, Eric, I am so disappointed in the chapel. You guys did not speak out against it like you should have. And therefore, I want you to know I'm leaving the church. The next phone call I took less than 24 hours later, I remember sitting in my daughter's room in her rocking chair. And this guy is blasting me that we spoke out too strongly. That why haven't we spoken out on any other racial injustice until now? And he told me that he's thinking about leaving the church. I never heard one thing about Jesus. I'm not saying what was said or what happened isn't a Jesus thing. I'm just telling you, our church fractured over this. In fact, a close friend of mine is black and he's a black pastor in our downtown Sandusky area and I asked to speak with him on stage together in our Norwalk campus. And it was such a great conversation. It was honest. It was repentful. I think that's a word, repentful. It is in my mind, at least. We, we own things as a church and we had to do some work. And I remember this guy asked to meet with me afterwards. I didn't know who he was. And he sat down. And as we sat down, right after we introduced each other, he told me all the ways that I am a liberal. I looked him in the eye and I, I listened to him. I said, you don't know me. How do you call me a conservative or a liberal? Again, nothing about Jesus, nothing about scripture. It was all about what I did or didn't do right. Our church fractured over this. Instead of coming together and doing what we should have, the world knew us as we were on this side or this side, just like the world was. Again, not a response to Jesus's prayer like we ought to. You all heard my story the other day about masks. I didn't do a great job of that. <laughs> it split my own heart. But when we decided to institute masks at our church, I was at Gall Lake last year. I, my phone was getting blown up from our superintendent saying, you need to come home. We need to get our school board together. We have to make a decision of what we're going to do. It's later in July. So we actually had to leave a day early to go back. But when we made the decision of masks at our church, unbeknownst to me, our other lead pastor did a great job explaining why we at this point are going to wear masks. And he put it out on video. You know how they tell you not to look at the comments on YouTube? The comments, unbelievable. Now again, I, I, I got... I got 
we were asking people to put a piece of cloth on their face. We were not holding a gun up to them. We were not telling them to disown Jesus. We weren't telling them to stop reading their Bibles. I mean, just a mask. Whether you're pro-mask or anti-mask, I'm, again, not getting into that. But it fractured our church. I remember going back, and if I had to put it in categories, I'll put it in three categories. We had staff who were fine with it. They're like, it's a piece of cloth. We'll deal with it. We had other staff members who were fine with it to our leadership's face, but were going behind our back and subverting our leadership and not doing what we asked them to do. Like for instance, in our children's ministry, because we didn't know what else to do, we were taking temperatures just like everyone else, daycares and schools were taking temperature. And one of our staff members would not take temperatures. And we found this out from another parent who wouldn't put their kid back in there because she wouldn't do what we asked her to do. And then we had other staff members whom I love, who took care of my own kids, who just went off the rails. In fact, when you open our newspaper one day, there's this huge picture of people who were, who were at a local supermarket protesting their rights, that they should be able to go into a private establishment, by the way, and not wear a mask. And who is on the front cover? But one of our staff members and former staff members. She's not there anymore. We did not fire her. She left on her own volition. And I remember in our exit interview, I was like, hey, I gotta ask you a question. Why are you, why are you in the newspaper? That was a dumb question to ask. <laughs> we had people who Paula and I poured into, who we did things for, who a guy who was struggling with pornography one time asked me to be his accountability partner, left the church immediately. We had a couple who we literally, the year before our church, saved their marriage. They were going to be heading to divorce if something didn't happen. And we helped save their marriage. And when we said you had to wear a mask, they left our church. Now, I wasn't up there saying there are other ways to God. If I were to say that, leave the church. <laughs> they left the church because of the masks. Divided. Not unified, not coming out to the world and saying, hey, we're going to be different. Even if we disagree, we were going to do so in a way that accepts everybody, that we're going to live in harmony with one another. When we hurt the other person who does or doesn't want to wear a mask, we're going to forgive one another. Wouldn't that have been awesome if the church came out like that? But we didn't. And then as if that couldn't get worse, we had this thing called the 2020 election. Oh, I remember there was a couple who are just so great in our church, leaders, went on mission trips with us, helped Paula, the guy helped Paula and I on a, on a construction project at our house, just great people. And we hadn't seen them for a long time coming to church and we didn't know why. So our co-lead pastor, Todd, he met with them and said, hey, where have you been? I miss you. And the lady, she kind of sat up straight and she was upset. And she goes, I can't go to the chapel. Todd goes, why? What happened? And she's like, because people vote differently than I do. And Todd goes, well, yeah, that is hard. But did you have a conversation with them? Did you talk to them about why they voted that way? Did you understand that sometimes we see things differently and they probably had a good reason to vote that way? Did you? And she's like, nah, I just didn't want to go anymore. The husband 
was very close to one of our pastors, said that he couldn't reconcile the fact that I admitted to our church that I have racial tendencies and I need to repent of those. He just couldn't see that in me. And because of that, he didn't want to deal with his own racial tendencies. And so he wanted to leave the church. And I'm like, I don't know what to do about this. (laughs) I could keep going on and on and on, but I know you want to eat, so I won't. But let me tell you this. We, up until this point, have not been the answer to Jesus's prayer. Jesus prayed we'd be one. Not agreeing all the time, but to disagree in a way that our love shined forth. We disagreed in a way that people thought somehow this collection of yahoos are getting along even though they have different understandings of masks and what racism is and what who should be present. Like, they're a family still. And instead, we use the name of Jesus. We blaspheme the name of Jesus to promote our own personal agendas. We use the word of God as a sword, not in the way that Jesus said it's a sword, but in the way that we did is we used God's word to somehow justify why we wanted to wear a mask or not wear a mask or why we should support the police or George Floyd, why we should do this or that. We use God's word to divide. How can that be? Jesus said, the world will know me not because I'm going to come down on the clouds and with a microphone shout out, I love you. It would be a lot easier if he would do that. He said, I know you about my love. Are we known by our love? He said, you're going to be known by what you're unified in and what you disagree about, you're still at the end of the day going to come together and be one. Just like the Father and the Son are one. It's our unity. So what do we do? Mike Foster puts it this way. Why should we stay and work on these problems? Why not just blow up the church? Because first of all, no one likes a quitter. And second, lobbing hand grenades on the bride of Christ takes zero talent or effort. And I also think this really ticks God off. He says, my five-year-old child complains and whines when things are not the way she wants them, but courageous men and women roll up their sleeves and get busy. I want, should say with a T there, I want to be an active participant in putting back together the broken pieces. Let's not talk about what we did in the past. Let's talk about what we need to do in the future. The vision for Jesus is that we'd be unified and we would be loving. We're not there yet, but we can be there. And it starts here today. The only way we can roll up our sleeves and get busy is not talking about it, but it's living it. And the only way that you and I can begin to live it is if we do the hard work of prayer. And that starts today. So I'm asking you to put your Bibles down for a moment. Put your phones down. And would you just pray with me? And here's the passage we're going to start off with praying. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. It is a famous psalm. We all know it, but it's time that we pray it. And the psalmist says, search me. Not the person that voted this way. Not the person who hasn't loved this way. Search me, God. What's in here? 
Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is an, an offensive way in me and lead me to the everlasting. Has there been a way that I've contributed to an unloving picture of who God is? Have I contributed to disunity in my church? It's time to repent today. So I just want you for the next few moments in the silence and in the presence of God's spirit, what is it that we've added to this disloving or disunity aspect of Jesus? And what do we need to just lay at Jesus' feet and get rid of? Let's repent together. Lord, we pray for the things that we've put ahead of you. We pray about the things that we have made gospel that aren't. We repent of the ways that we've contributed to our church's wrong view, or the community and the world's wrong view of Jesus. We repent that if we put our nationalism ahead of you, our view of social issues ahead of you, our view of racism ahead of you. That, Lord, may we flip that. May you determine all of those things that we are repenting of so that at the end of the day, it's about love within the walls of the church and unity within the walls of the church because if we get these two things right, the world will see you and hopefully Jesus want you just like we want you. Thank you for the gift of repentance because when we are repentant before you, you will draw near to us. And you will do some amazing things. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. In Jesus' name.